you know, James makes the statement, confess your sins to one another so you mm. can be fixed. The word fixed is not in there. No. So you can be forgiven. It's not about that. I don't no. need to confess my sins to any of you brothers in order to be forgiven unless I have hurt you. I need mm. to confess my sins to God. Right. But James says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. Mm -hmm. And I really want to be healed. Mm -hmm. So why is there so much confession of sin in the American church and so little healing? Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast, coming to you. <laughs> coming to you live uh, from not far offshore. <laughs> we are landlocked, you know. Okay, yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'm your host Nate Larkin. Uh, we're joined uh, from the other side of the continent by our co-host, the inimitable Aaron Porter. Hello, Aaron. Good morning, Nate. How are you this morning? I am. I am not bad. Not bad for a rapidly aging old man. Uh, and uh, Newton is here. You remember Newton, don't you? I feel like I should reintroduce myself to the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> man, Newton's there, and we're not skyping. Maybe we should plug Skype in. I want to see Newton's pretty hair. Yeah, I'm wearing a hat. I did that just for you. Okay. And I think he's grown th another three inches. For listeners inches. that don't know, Newton usually has fantastically groomed <laughs> hair. I, I Very creative stuff. I like to be a well-appointed fella. Okay. Uh, he's going for the Tom Selleck barely shaved look. I'll explain that in a minute. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> wow. And uh, Mark Whitlock, the new uh, executive uh, producer, uh, engineer, uh, uh, just the, the wizard who is transforming the podcast is here. Hey, Mark. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night, depending on whatever time you're listening to this. But hey, hey, Mark, real quick, listeners that uh, feel that Harry Potter is uh, evil and bad for the church, <laughs> Nate meant wizard in a Gandalf way, which for some reason is appropriate to the church. So just just to clarify, he's a, he's a good wizard. He's a white wizard. Christian <laughs> wizard. Okay. Great. Uh, I'll give an update on Mondo. Okay, please uh, do. Mondo received an award this week. I saw that. Yeah, yes. So for his uh, new work with Spartan Financial, he got the Grindstone Award yeah. for his work huh. over the last year. And I, I suppose it means Grinding nose it out. to the Grindstone. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, uh, so good for him. And I know that he wants to be with us and would have been here last week, but we were snowed out. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we were iced out. We had, you know, a sheet of ice. And that yes. keeps us all home and makes us buy bread and milk. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, anyway. is that is that just a a Nashville phenomenon? Well, the no. Nashville version of that, yep. uh, the Nashville version is you go buy bread and milk, and the minute you see the flurries, you're in the car doing it because what you really have to do is hit a telephone pole. It's not about the, <laughs> it's not about the bread and the milk. It's Got you, it. you must hit a telephone you pole. Must hit a telephone and pole. by the way, that is the mellifluous voice of Wes Yoder. Uh, I need to Google mellifluous. Drips <laughs> <laughs> as if with honey. <laughs> a fixture here in the Christian community in Nashville, and really nationally and internationally. Uh, you may all, you may know of Wes Yoder, uh, uh, a, uh, a talent representative for a long time, uh, a, a great encouragement to Christian artists of all types, 
He is also a uh, literary agent, a speaking agent, uh, author of a great book, and uh, a guy with a real commitment to men's ministry. We're going to get to kind of the exciting things that have been going on I've decided in Wes's life. I don't like men. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like us. No, I really do. I really love us. But I, yeah. Yeah, I just thought I'd throw that into, you know, lighten up that, that introduction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, uh, back to Newton. Okay. Uh, you were absent three weeks ago. Yeah, uh, but uh, because you were running a marathon. Uh, yeah, or was about to, or I was in. Yeah, I yeah, was, right. Yeah, we record on Wednesdays. The marathon was on Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I ran my first marathon three weeks ago. Um, it was. It's it's hard saying that it was awesome because there is a really dark spot in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was everything that I want to get out of running, which is finding um, that spot where I have to push through expectations and get to the hard part of it, the teeth of it. Yeah, so that I can kind of find out who I am and find out like where my guts are. Yeah. So in that regard, it was it was fantastic, and my I was concerned my body wouldn't accept the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, but much to your son's. Um, dismay um, as he hobbled around the house on Monday. I could have run Monday morning. You dog. Uh, yeah, he. There were there were foul things said in my direction. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, my feet hurt and and my knees were just a, a little bit sore. But I I could have run Monday. Could have run Tuesday. Um, wow. <clears throat> well, that's so that how was you're encouraging. Feel that you're, you know, your feet a little bit sore, your knees a little bit sore. That's how you're going to feel every morning when you. Get old. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a preliminary. It's, it's really good right. for young people to run marathons just so they can identify with the guys yeah. with gray hair. Should I tell yeah. Wes I'm 40? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that guy. He's 40 freaking I'm, I'm years really old. related with part of your story. Not so much the running the marathon. But right. On Monday, I woke up and thought I could have run on Monday. <laughs> and uh, Tuesday, I could have run on Tuesday. It was the exact same feeling. So I, I relate to you. You're almost, you're almost there. Yeah. You're almost there. Well, you know, I have not run any marathons. However, I um, now wear uh, a little nag on my wrist. This is my wife's Christmas present to me, a Fitbit. Thanks for defining nag and wife and wrist and yes, yeah. okay. So, <laughs> so I've got I've got this 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 um, annoying little trainer on my wrist that tracks everything I do and don't do. Yeah, and gives me a summary. Yeah, and it shows up on my phone, and it has decided, for example, that I need to walk ten thousand steps a day. Now, actually, on a typical day, since I usually take a one-hour walk with one guy or another in the morning, I can get in 5,000, 6,000 steps Mm -hmm. by 8 in the morning. And then I got a decent shot uh, at finishing up the 10,000. But (laughs) I found myself sometimes late in the evening. It's getting close to bedtime, and I've just cracked (laughs) 9,000. Laps around the house. Oh, man, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really sad. And, And it also tracks my sleep. Yeah. In some scare, I don't know how this technology works. Yeah, it's it really. Um, it was created by a wizard. <laughs> it's right, but it also has determined that I need eight hours of sleep, hmm. and I get stars and rewards and attaboys when I get you know when I meet the goals and when I don't. I can just feel the disappointment coming from my left wrist. <laughs> it's. <laughs> That's so now I'm under pressure to get to bed in time. 
to yeah. to get in the eight hours. But isn't it isn't it funny how just the awareness that something's watching you, the awareness that you're being yeah. tracked, and you're doing it voluntarily, right? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. as voluntarily as Allie will let it be, right? Um, how it it adds, I mean, an element of expectation, and oh, I got to get this, or I'm letting something down. Doesn't yes. it sound a little bit you like know? the definition for fundamentalism? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit. Okay. Yes. Newton, should we we tell Nate that he can program that on his phone? I was <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you can adjust the step count. Oh really? Oh I didn't no, know. This. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Only up. Only up. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh so we can help you adjust really, the step really? count. Really, really? I'm working with default goals. <laughs> yes. I didn't know this. Yeah. <laughs> Two greatest words in the English language, default. <laughs> so, that's a Homer Simpson joke. <laughs> there you go. So I believe that we should dive in. A couple of things of business before we do. One, we've had some great response. Uh, to our listener survey. We'd love to have you be a part of the listener survey. Just come to piratemonkpodcast.com, click on the survey link, and in about five to six minutes, you can tell us what you really think about the podcast and tell us what you want most out of it. Uh, It's been fun to see some encouraging and some snarky comments uh, coming in on the survey, so uh, we want you to be a part of that. And just know that you can always leave us a voicemail uh, there on the website, if you go down to the bottom of any page, you'll see the ability to leave a voicemail using the microphone from your phone or your computer. Uh, there's a phone number listed uh, in every page of the show notes that you can call and leave a uh, normal voicemail from a, a, a standard telephone. And you can always leave text comments there on the website or on the Facebook page. And if you haven't joined us on the Facebook page, please come over and become a part of that community. Uh, so just a little bit of business before we dive into our interview today. By the way, Mark, I just have to say this. Props on the show notes, baby. I mean, we have taken a major step forward yeah. in the quality of this podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, you're doing a, just a superb job. Can't thank you. Enough. Thanks. Here, here. All right. We'll be back in just a minute with our guest here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are here with Wes Yoder in the studio. You are in the studio, right, Wes? I don't have Skype going. I'm here. Good to, good to be here this morning. Thank you. <laughs> or whatever time of day it is. That's right. Well, welcome. So give give me a little background, because I know Nate, is uh, he's got the advantage here. He actually knows you. So uh, give me a little bit about who this man named Yoder is, starting with, what nationality does the name Yoder come from? Because I have never in my life met a Yoder. You've never met a Yoder? You've never been to eastern Pennsylvania? 
We are from Steffesburg, oh. Switzerland, originally. That is the ancestral home of all Yoders. Huh. Okay. The etymology of the name, if this is what you were asking about, yes. came from St. Theodore, who was a missionary from uh, a Catholic monk, of course, from Milan, who went to the, the district of Bern in Switzerland in 381. And St. Theodore, eventually through about six iterations of the name, became Yoder. Oh, okay. Theodore Yoder. So it means, it mean, whatever it means. Uh, I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Um, I was conceived in the Amish church and born in the Mennonite church, which is a fact few people know. Okay. Uh, wait, wait, wait. How? how <laughs> I, 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 I'm glad somebody paused. Are, are, are you physically? I want to clarify. I want to clarify. There, there is no conception. There is no conception going on whatsoever in church. Okay. okay. Uh, none whatsoever. And and and, uh, and maybe if they had dancing or something, it would lead to that, but I don't know. Uh, so my parents were a part of the Beachy Amish Church. Both of them had grown up Old Order Amish. And oh, so we grew really? Up, we grew up speaking German at home. Um, I went to a, a two-room Amish Mennonite schoolhouse, mostly Amish, mm-hmm. um, near Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. It was it was um, Paradise, Pennsylvania, which is just down the road from Intercourse, Pennsylvania. Right. Which people need to know this. <laughs> it's a real place. And uh, four days before I was born, my parents and about eight of their relatives started this little chapel that became a Mennonite church to reach the poor people of the community of Southern Lancaster County. Mm-hmm. Lancaster County is a very wealthy county now, but there, it was very divided. North of Route 30 was rich, south of Route 30 was poor, and my parents intentionally moved there uh, to, to reach their, uh, the neighbors around mm-hmm. us for Jesus, including some of the Amish people. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Some of the Amish people, like my grandparents on both sides, very committed to the scriptures, very um, you know, thoroughly Christian. Others are, are, are depending, like many people do, for their attendance in church or their participation in the Amish tradition for their salvation. And we know where that, you know, that doesn't help you a lot. So yeah. um, my, my parents were always had a heart for this. And one of the greatest compliments that I could ever give to them is that uh, I never saw them treat a rich man, whether he was an ambassador or, or some government official, or the poorest person never saw them treat anyone differently whatsoever. They would oh, wow. they would grab you, hug you, hold your face the minute you walked into hmm. in, into their kitchen and say, "How are you? Yeah. Would you sit down and have a meal with us?" Wow. That was mom and dad. Wow! Huh. Wow! Uh, how many other kids in the family? Uh, there are seven siblings. I have five brothers and one sister. Okay. And about ninety three first cousins, and that's true. <laughs> oh really? Oh really? Okay. <clears throat> okay. And of course, uh, being Amish and Mennonite, uh, you went to a lot of rock concerts as a kid, I'm assuming. Well, um, the, the, the actual story is that I got my first radio when I was 16, just in time not to miss the Beatles phenomenon. We had, oh. a, we, we had a radio in the car, but we, we did not have TV, so I, I missed all the Ed Sullivan things. Right, right. You know, when, when, we, when my wife and I got married, she was from California, which is a whole other story, because she grew up in a drunk family, and I have this, these parents who never fought. And so you have this incredible combination of someone who doesn't think that married people should fight, right? And my wife, who, who that's her love language. <laughs> you know, if only if only to locate me. And so, you know, so all of this. Anyway, there's just there's just a, a really fun. There's a lot of stories in the middle of all that. Mm-hmm. What brought you? Yeah, uh, bring us along a little bit. Okay. So you grow up in this uh, wonderful Christian, devout home. Correct. In a uh, and in a pretty sheltered environment, you were not deeply culturally engaged outside 
the locality, were you? No, not really. Uh, not at, We never had any vacations whatsoever. We were dairy farmers. We had no money. Okay. Plenty of food. I remember uh, one daytime excursion to, to a park. That uh-huh. was our, our the only... Uh, family vacation I ever remember. Sure, because cows are demanding; they want to they want to be fed and milk morning that, and evening. That's right. So uh, that's going on. My father had a heart attack, uh, which was um, connected to some things that were hidden in his life mm-hmm. uh, that were stress induced. When I was um, a rising um, ninth grader, mm-hmm. uh, or rising tenth grader, and then the following year, and he was not able to farm. So each one of us older brothers, I was the third son. Uh, each one of us older brothers had decided um, a while earlier that we were going to stay out of college one year uh-huh. to help dad on the farm and then go to college. Right. Well, because of his heart attack, the day after I graduated from high school, I had 160 acres. I had 35 milk cows and about that many other animals and a brother in ninth grade for my crew, a whole dairy operation, hay, wow. you know, silo filling, everything. Wow. And so, and they were able to pay me $50 a month. Dad always bragged back in our day. <laughs> you know, I, you know, he would, I go, Dad, you had me on slave. Labor wages, but it was it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, but being uh, creative, I was able to get myself in debt on that budget, uh, and so instead of being able to go to college, uh, I had no money and didn't realize the scholarships that would have been available. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in construction for two years, and then um, one night, I, I, I'll tell this story really quickly. Uh, I was working. Nights and weekends with a little nonprofit, Christian nonprofit group, and we were doing all kinds of things like brought Ralph Carmichael in to conduct <gasps> the Lancaster Symphony Orchestra, in a, and we had a choir uh-huh. uh, made out of uh, kids from small youth groups all over the county, um, and we did a premiere of Tell It Like It Is. We brought in uh, Dale Evans uh, Rogers wow. for speaking engagements. We had Paul Harvey in. I met oh, Paul Harvey. Yeah. Wow. And then we had on September 22nd, 1972. We had this big concert at the Elizabethtown College, 3,800 seats sold out, Pat Boone and his four beautiful daughters. Oh, wow. And the Imperials who were backing up Elvis at the time. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that night, we, you know, it was not a union hall, and we were doing all the cleanup ourselves. We put all of these beautiful people, Hollywood people, back on the bus around 1.30 in the morning, mm-hmm. and we're cleaning up the auditorium at 2.30. I'm driving an hour to my parents' place, yeah. and I have to be an hour from my parents' place by 7 in the morning for my construction job, running jackhammers and doing all this yeah, other yeah, junk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, on the way home, I said, if there is a way, if there's any way in the world to do what we did tonight for a living, I'm never going back to that job again. Oh, and by yeah. the time I had gotten to my parents' house, I decided to set my alarm clock, call Sam Long, my boss, and said, Sam, Mr. Long, I'm not coming to work today. He said, yeah. well, I was going to fire you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and two weeks can, later, because can I, of- can I step back in the story for just a moment? Sure. Uh, when, and I don't know if this is a question that you can answer or if you are uh, comfortable with that. You said your dad had a heart attack because of some secret stuff in his life that was related to stress. Right. It was the secret stuff that created the stress. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, part of this is his story to tell. And I, mm-hmm. I tell part of it in the book um, in, in terms that are specific enough to let people know it was serious. Yeah. Um, he, he did some very inappropriate things sexually. Yeah. Um, uh, he had, 
you know, fallen into some traps when he was about 16 back on the farm as an Amish kid yeah. that, that followed him. Yeah. Um, that discussion I'm very, very open about mm-hmm. um, in a public forum. So I guess here's, here's my question. I'll let you off the hook a little bit because I do understand when it's somebody else's story to tell. Uh, did all of that come out when you were at that age? It came out when he was 74 and I was 42. And it was the incident of our family life that set us free. Wow. Um, it, what happened, Dad, um, uh, someone, had, uh, someone that he had hurt uh, confronted him um, and basically said, either you tell the story, I tell the story. Mm-hmm. So it involved other people. And you, yeah. can, you can just, you know, you yeah. could, the, the list is short, you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and you'd be, you know, close to right. And so Dad uh, told Mom uh, what was going on and then called each one of his seven kids. We were spread across Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, and Tennessee. Yeah. And he said, I'm coming. We're coming to see each one of you because I have something to say. Wow. And the night that I will never forget it, my brother Nate and his wife live uh, here in in Spring Hill, and we're having dinner at their house. Mom and dad are at the table. Dad's sitting to my right, and uh, dinner is over, and it's his turn to talk. And he hangs his head down low mm-hmm. and can almost say nothing. I put my hand on his arm and I said, Dad, it's okay. You can talk. Mm-hmm. And he gets this one sentence out. He said, well, what I did, they used to stone people for in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. tears coming down his face and he is quiet for five minutes. And I yeah. reach over and grab his arm again. And I said, Dad, I too have done things for which they used to stone people in yeah. the Old Testament, it's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Tell us. Yeah, and it, it came out. Yeah, a year later, and we, and at that point, we didn't know if we could trust Dad. I mean, we had no idea if we could trust them again. Who was this guy? What was going on? Yeah, were Mom and Dad going to stay together? They did. You know, mm-hmm. what in the world are they going to do at seventy? You know, seventy four and seventy two years old. A year later, I'm riding around Pennsylvania in his little blue truck, and I have a I have a picture, of a five by seven picture, one of my favorite treasures of life of his little blue truck that he drove around on his sharpening business and I was going helping him make the delivery of the sharpened tools. He was mm-hmm. an amazing craftsman uh-huh. um, and, and could sharpen a tool like nobody's business. We pull into the driveway at supper time and I say, Dad, you remember a year ago how you had the courage to confess your sins to the family? Yeah. He grabs the steering wheel with both arms and puts his head down in complete and utter Amish shame or Catholic shame or yeah, whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever shame, that whatever was, brand yeah. you have, brother, yeah. out there, put his head down. And I said, I've always felt like I had to hide from you. Yeah. Hmm. Would it be okay if I confessed the sins of my youth and of my life to you? And he looked up and tears in his eyes. And he goes, Yeah, I guess that'd be okay. Wow. Hmm. And I told him everything I could think of. I think I missed a few things, but it wasn't intentional. Yeah. I told him everything. We sat there in that truck and cried like men because sometimes, brothers, there are things that men need to cry about and and some things that we as fathers need to show our kids are worth crying about. Yes, yes. Cool, we can stop now. We can go. (laughs) So, so Wes, looking looking back, since you didn't know what was going on, uh, I guess for me as a father and thinking about our listeners, I think our secret lives affect our family more than we want to acknowledge or even realize. So when you look back on years where there was active sin going on, 
do you put pieces together and say, oh, wow, that, that was affecting my life? Yeah, there were, there were things like that, especially the silence. I noticed that uh, this is an, uh, something I noticed when I was younger and then through my, my um, you know, middle age experience, I noticed the dad uh, would never do anything more in, uh, in church than be the greeter. Mm-hmm. And every now and then he was a Sunday school superintendent that basically said it's time for Sunday school and ring the bell and now it's time for the sermon or whatever. He would never go further than that because he felt disqualified. Mm-hmm. This man was brilliant. He he went to Amish school. He was in he started when he was in uh, when he was 5. They don't have kindergarten. He skipped 7th grade mm-hmm. and he was in 8th grade 3 years because you can't in Amish school go past you, you don't go past eighth grade, oh. and Pennsylvania law is such that you have to stay in school till you're 14. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he was in eighth grade. He, he had the mind, a, mind, a brilliant mind, the mind of an engineer. Yeah. Um, he's one of those guys who could meet you one time and ask you how to spell your name in case he didn't, wasn't sure he heard it. If he heard you spell your name, he would, he would have it for the rest of his life. Mm. No wow. joke. I mean, brilliant guy. Yeah. So Nate, how does this resonate with you? Because this is part of your story of how fathers need to include their children and what your journey with your kids were. And I mean, part part of this story is very similar to you and your coming out to your kids with your secret life. But uh, I wonder if there's something a little more proactive we can understand through these two stories to say, okay, dads, here's, yeah, you've got your personal struggles. And part of that needs to be handled within the community of men, but it also needs to somehow integrate family. You take it from there, Nate. You have something to say. Well, yeah, well, I can't remember whether I've told this story on the podcast or not. I'm at that age where I can't remember how many times I've told a story. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that I took so long to make my way through the 12 steps was I was terrified of steps seven and eight. I lived just in fear of making amends. Hmm. Uh, And I mostly was afraid of making amends to my kids with whom I'd managed to um, preserve uh, a sterling reputation. They really thought I was 10 feet tall and that I I hadn't, and I I had done that at the expense of my wife's reputation. Hmm. I had built the fiction in our home that I was the one who had it together I was the one who was reasonable and rational. And uh, if anybody went off the rails, it was mom. Um, Fortunately, I had the counsel of a a good sponsor before I made amends um, and kind of talked through with him what I would tell my kids. My kids were all grown by the time I told them uh, in detail what I had done. And actually, I gave them the details, the full details of my sexual acting out before uh, I gave all of it to Allie. Uh, So they knew before she did. Uh, And the the reaction was much the same as Wes has described his reaction to his dad. Uh, I remember my my daughter um, just collapsing in tears and then hugging me and thanking me Mm. and then saying... And then saying, um, I could never understand why my Christian life wasn't working when yours was working so well. (laughs) (laughs) And it made, uh, it opened the door to uh, authentic uh, relationship in our family, really deepened our connections, and did a ton to heal 
my kids' relationship with their mother because one of my main points of my amends was to repent of the way mm-hmm. I had lied to them, not only about myself, mm-hmm. but about them. Wow. And uh, to tell them really what a hero she had been, what she had put up with, and what she sheltered them from. Allie mm-hmm. stayed with me and stayed with us largely out of you know love for the family and loyalty to those kids. Mm-hmm. If it had just been the two of us, I think she'd have been history. Um, and and that did a lot just to heal our family. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the appropriate version of bringing kids in earlier so that it doesn't have to be a when you get older I'll confess to everything? What what are steps that can be taken and this can be answered by either of you? Where they grow up in mm-hmm. a a house that's authentic, a house that's open. Yeah. yeah. Well, the first thing that I did after uh, dad uh, sat at that table and we were, you know, dealing with all this ourselves, uh, the first thing I did is I went to my son who I think was 15 or 16 at the time I had to calculate. I think I actually were 30 years apart so he would have been 12 or 14, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I went to him and I said, "I just want you to know that um, your father, me, mm-hmm. I am not perfect." Mm-hmm. And I have done things in my life that um, you know I'm ashamed of, but I'm an open book. And if you want me to tell you that story right now, I'll tell it to you. He said, no, no, Dad, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any of that. <laughs> and, and, and I said, okay. I said, I'm just telling you that, this is, that, that there is a history here of sin in my life, and I am happy to talk about any aspect of it whenever you're ready all you have to do is ask. You don't have to be embarrassed about asking. I'm happy to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so little pieces have come out over the years. We've never had the big sit-down talk, but it set the, it set the, the table for us to have a really authentic and honest relationship. Yeah. And I would encourage, um, I mean, there are things that are age-appropriate and things that are not age-appropriate. Um, and so you have to use wisdom yeah. uh, when you're talking to younger children. Um, you have to pray about timing. Um, you know, Linda had a part of her story that she told um, her, our son, but never told our daughter. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, "Why won't you tell her? Why won't you tell her?" And and it something didn't feel right. Yeah. It didn't feel like it was the right time. And by golly, she was right. And this past year, she told our daughter, and it was a stunning moment. If it had been told before, it would have been it would have been the wrong time. So there are things that perhaps are a part of your story that you might that might come out when you're 50, 60, 70 years old, but not because you're hiding it. Right. Because because of some other uh, right. other dynamic and you have to really uh, examine your own heart about what am I hiding this mm-hmm. and and just just not not I mean you just have to really use wisdom in that in those yeah. things. And and the other what I'm hearing okay. as you're saying that is <clears throat> That requires like wisdom to me because I'm dumb by myself. I'll own that. Wisdom requires community, right? So you've got to have somebody else that you can bounce that idea off of. Right. It requires authenticity and openness in sure. your marriage if you're a, a married person because like you and your wife talked about that. Right. Like, why aren't you? Why didn't you? And trusting the other person. Exactly. And then knowing yourself and being connected <clears throat> to yourself. You can't be authentic if you're not. I can't be authentic if I'm not in community and working that out on a daily basis and talking to my wife and open with my wife and then paying attention to myself and listening to my gut. Right. Exactly. I mean, we can't do life by ourselves the way it was meant to to be done. You know, Bonhoeffer had a lot to say about that too. And and both of you gentlemen had good experiences 
uh, or at least that you've, you've presented them as very positive experiences with the confession. Mm-hmm. Um, in my situation, I've got an incredibly mixed situation yeah. to where a couple of my children have responded well, yeah. a couple of my children haven't, and my wife didn't yeah. um, and continues to not respond well to that. How does a guy walk through that? How does a guy walk through the the mixed messages and and how does he communicate continued uh, repentance and forgiveness uh, in the process? One of the things that's so important is to understand that when God does a redemptive work in your life that takes five months, it he might he's always doing a redemptive work. In your children, in your in your wife, in 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 the other people in the room, but it might take fifteen months or two months. It's not necessarily the same timeline. And what do you learn out of that? You learn a patience out of that. You learn um, to go deeper in examining your own sorrows. You you can't you can't force someone else to deal with their sorrows. And 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 that's one of the things that's gone missing in the church. We don't. We have our celebrations of worship. Yes. And there is no place for sorrow in most of our in, of our gatherings together. Yes. And hmm. something. You know, if if we're going to be alive, and 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 equipped to live, even in the twenty first century and beyond, we're going to have to figure out how to do that. So so Mark, you can you can deal with your own sorrow, but you can't deal with theirs. You can live patiently and waiting. All the while forgiving, and the forgiveness part of it can get really hard because you want your your heart left to, to itself will will become bitter or would like to become bitter just because it would feel great one time, and that's where we come into this part of sometimes even with the sorrow there's anger, but it's the kind of anger that that can be redemptive where we don't sin in anger. It says be angry but don't sin. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that you're not going to feel those emotions. Those those emotions are are absolutely significant and matter inside of you because they reveal something further and 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 god calls us another step through maybe our anger but certainly through our sorrows Mm, mm. there's a there's a deep gospel tension in that and i think wes it's key what you're saying that often we've gone through a process by which we've come to confess and to not allow others, to expect others to just arrive at the place we've arrived when it took us possibly years or decades is uh, ungracious in the extreme. But at the same time, uh, if I confess something to someone and they are not yet able to apply gospel grace, I'm put in the position where I need to receive the full redemptive power of the blood of Christ in my life and be released from that shame and not allow somebody else to continue to require me to go to shame for their sake. That's right. But at the same time, if I live that inappropriately, I start to look glib about past offenses. And so living a gospel life with humility before those who have not yet learned where the gospel touches their life in that area is uh, is a real tightrope walk sometimes. But I think it's necessary because I have known uh, many spouses that I've had to counsel that have agreed to remain in their shame and uh, until their spouse lets them out of the shame prison. Right. And that is gospel inappropriate. 
Another thing that I think is gospel inappropriate is how we do confession in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and this is not, um, this is not to diminish any, any confession whatsoever, but what is happening so many times, you know, James makes the statement, um, confess your sins to one another so you mm-hmm. can be fixed. The word fix is not in there. No. So you can be forgiven. It's not about that. I don't no. need to confess my sins to any of you brothers in order to be forgiven unless I have hurt you. I need mm-hmm. to confess my sins to God. Right. But James says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. Mm-hmm. And I really want to be healed. Mm-hmm. So why is there so much confession of sin in the American church and so little healing? Mm-hmm. And I think it's like this. I think, I think you know, Mark or Wes or Nate or, you know, one of us comes to, to the other <clears throat> and we say, hey, I got to confess something to you. I got to confess some sins. And we look at the brother who's just, you know, come to us in humility with this confession. And we say, you know, it's really going to be good for you that you confess your sin. You're going to, it's going to help you a lot. Check. Mm-hmm. Like it was a legal arrangement. It is not a legal relationship. It is an arrangement. It is a relational thing. And I have this, I have this theory that if you really want to change the church and make it a welcoming place, that when somebody does confess their sins, I would like us, I would like us for one year to practice this and see what it does nationwide. That I refuse to hear another man's confession of sin unless I'm willing to kneel down in the dirt with him. And confess my sins as well. Wow, that would transform what yeah. what we're doing. That would bring the healing that we are crying for. We are screaming. We are we are begging for the healing of Jesus in these things. Yeah. But we're not. We're we're just. We, we we have removed our hearts from the process of repentance. Mm. Even that verse, um, it's it's a two, it, it's two way confession is implicit in it. Yeah, Con- confess your sins to, to one, one another. To one yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, there's, yeah. a, it's a, there's a two-way street built into it. And yeah, confession does yeah. seem extremely one-sided Yeah, with the, with the way. And yeah. maybe, maybe what we should do for one year in the church, and this is, <clears throat> you know, people look at me like I'm crazy when I first say this, but what if we stop confessing our sins altogether for one year? Say, we're not going to confess our sins for one year, but what we are going to do is talk about our sorrows. Hmm. Because there is a sorrow that leads to repentance, and we have so much confession that's not leading to any kind of sorrow or even to repentance. You know, I, I'm glad you came back around to the subject of sorrow because <clears throat> it struck me so deeply when you mentioned it a few minutes ago. Uh, I was deeply impressed a few years ago when Michael Card, in his book about the Psalms, pointed uh, a book about the, lament, the laments. pointed out that more than half of the Psalms are laments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know, I know, I still have much progress to be made in recovery, and I have been told more than once by more than one person whom I deeply respect that my most of my unfinished work is grief work, <laughs> and grief just terrifies me. Yeah. Just terrifies me. Why, Nate? Do you know why it terrifies you? I, um, I mean, it's personal. I haven't. I have. Uh, have not cried since my mother's suicide, didn't cry at a funeral, haven't cried since. Hmm. And I have this, I think, a deep belief that if I were to ever start crying, I would never stop. 
I have a deep belief that if you were to start crying, you would start laughing. Yeah, yeah. In in a way that is deeper than any laugh you've ever had. Could be. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, dear listeners, we're going to let you up from this stranglehold in the deep end by taking a break. <laughs> and when we come back, we're going to ask Thank God. Wes how he, how he came out of a shame culture steeped in secrets and found community. Because I want to know. We'll be right back. Back of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, Wes, I'd like to pick your story up uh, from, I mean, that great night with the big concert. Now you've made the decision to quit the construction job, but you're still in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, What happens next? I had a friend from Harlem who was a gospel singer who is still um, a pastor up around 125th and 5th Avenue where he grew up right on the corner where the uh, race riots started mm-hmm. in 1968, in 1971 and 72. Sorry, were you were you the only guy in eastern Pennsylvania that could say, I've got a friend from Harlem? Uh, I, uh, <laughs> there were about three of us, and we loved Henry. Henry was a great uh, singer, a wonderful guy. We're, we're still in touch, by the way. It's really, really a sweet thing. Um, but I went, because I had quit my job on the spot, September 22nd, uh, two weeks later, I was on Long Island at a Jesus festival. And there was one, uh, one guy on the program who had a national recording contract. And back then, we were in awe of anybody that actually had a recording contract. It was Randy Matthews. Okay. And I met him afterwards. He said, oh, you're from Lancaster. My wife is from Westchester. I've always wanted one of those Amish hats. Can you get me one and send me one? <laughs> so I took literally my last 20 bucks, went, <laughs> went to New Holland to the store where they sell hats, and sent him an Amish hat. It was waiting for him before he got home. And he called me and said, nobody does what they say they'll do on the road. Oh, Thank yeah. you. Huh. And and uh, by the way, do you guys know any uh, coffee shops and churches up there that would like a, a, a Jesus rocker to come in and do some concerts? I said, I think we could probably do that. So, because we had we had all kinds of connections with, with Eastern Pennsylvania, even some in Western Pennsylvania with churches. Mm-hmm. So nobody else in the little nonprofit organization wanted to do it. They go, Wes, why don't you do that? Mm-hmm. I go, okay, I'll do it. So I booked him a five-day tour. And on that five-day tour at the end of January 1973, he said to me, Randy said to me, this is the best tour I've ever been on. Will you come to Nashville? I said, I'm not moving to the South. I don't want to live down there. Are you kidding me? You guys are crazy down there. And so 
he prevailed and I agreed to come down for one year. Mm -hmm. And my dad always would say, you know, son, it's been 35 years. Have you lost track of time? You said you were going to be gone a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I got to Nashville. And, oh. and so in 19, in February 27th, 43 years ago, wow. uh, coming up in one month, I moved to Nashville, uh, was the first person in Nashville to work in anything to do with uh, with uh, Jesus music or contempt. There was no such thing as contemporary Christian music then. Right. <laughs> so I was the first business person in Nashville, and there was one artist that I represented him. That turned into management. That turned into all kinds of things. We represented Amy Grant in the early years, uh, mm -hmm. launched Leon Patillo, Michael Card for five years, managed uh, during the El Shaddai years. Yeah. Um, uh, Petra and Josh McDowell, that, uh, that tour, the Y-Way wow. tour. Um, and then all all sorts of things. In 1976, I started working with uh, my our first speaker. 1984, formed the first faith-based speakers bureau, I guess, anywhere in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And that led to literary representation um, uh, that I started doing. I, I guess I did my first book deal with Doubleday before they were part of Random House in mm -hmm. 1978. Wow. And started, and again, here's a kid who never went to college, so I had a whole stack uh, by the time I wind up in 1997, of of book contracts that I had helped people with, or people had said, "Would you look at this and see what you what you mm -hmm. think of it?" Right. And I had watched the migration of of uh, contract law related to to the literary world mm -hmm. and intellectual properties, and that's how I learned it. Wow. Huh. And then in 1997, the Lord brought along a major client, and we we said, "Oh, we're." Now literary agents. Okay. <laughs> so all kinds of things. We got out of the music business um, in, in the year 2000, except for working with Buddy Green, uh -huh. who over Christmas, as many of you know, uh, because of Jordan Smith on The Voice, um, uh, Mark Lowry and Buddy Green wrote that incredible song, Mary Did You Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a number one download on iTunes for, for a week. Wow. <laughs> Wow. So we still work with Buddy, but everything else is speakers and writers. Now, yeah. over all of those years, you have worked with... Uh, speakers, musicians, authors, men who have been coming through quite a bit of life. Right. And you've been able to be with them behind the curtain, behind the scenes, behind the pen. What, what did you learn in the trenches about encouraging men and, and helping men along the way? Because I know you've learned a lot of lessons there that now apply to your work uh, one, today. One, one of the things. Yeah. And, and possibly, let me, let me add one nuance to that question, because for you to become an encourager of men at some point you either broke into authenticity or you slid into it <laughs> and, and then decided i need to bring this to the people i work with so both what did you discover and for you personally when did that actually start changing the way you perceived your christian life and role with other men. I think in some ways it's the way that some people come to faith in Christ. Some people slide into it. It's, it's a progression. Mm -hmm. Some people have uh, more of a Damascus Road experience. I think uh, the awareness of life uh, that 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 you and Mark are talking about uh, came more gradually. There were there were a lot of things in my training and my background. You don't tell lies. You live in integrity. You you you're you know the Amish culture to this day among themselves do not sign contracts. They say they're going to do something. They do it, mm -hmm. and so that was very much ingrained in me. The other thing that came out of um, my heritage, which I'm very thankful for, dis despite a lot of. Uh, what many people would view as the theological drift of the Mennonite Church in some in some places, 
um, one of the things that they do have right is life and community mm-hmm. and, and understanding that you can't live alone, that we're not meant to live alone. And the other thing they have is that the kingdom of God is within you, that, that we are living in the kingdom of God. And we are not a part of a political party. We are not a part of, of any of this stuff. My father, and this is, this is becoming... Uh, you know, this is becoming more interesting, especially in this election year. But my father never voted one day in his life on the basis that he said, I am an ambassador from another country. Hmm. And ambassadors from other countries don't have voting rights in the country where they serve. Wow. Wow. So just apply some of that to the mm-hmm. to the mad the mad entertainment scene that we're looking at in our political world at the moment. And yeah. maybe, maybe it'll give you some guidance. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think uh, in, in answer to the question... Uh, there were challenges along the way. There were, there were things. You know what I learned early on about represent, representing someone, uh, another person. How do you do that? How do you represent someone else? And I, I, I discovered that what I had to do was to get to know the people that I represented, so that I, with confidence, could say, "This is true about this person today, and it will be true one year from now when hmm. when this event happens. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, you can come back and talk to me." Yeah, um, and so we had we had early on a comedian that we were working with, and um, this was a, a, a kind of a burst of life into our financial life. Uh, I think we had scheduled, and this was back in the in the eighties, about two hundred thousand dollars very quickly mm-hmm. on our reputation that that we had had somebody else. If you liked him, you're going to like this person, and the and the demo tapes were all good, and we scheduled a lot of events. Come to find out, the guy had a serious gambling problem. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to him and saying, look, I can't put you out there. I cannot let this continue. He goes, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about gambling. I said, well, besides that, I just have a question for you. If, if it came out that Billy Graham had a gambling problem, do you think his ministry would be over? And he goes, well, yeah, probably. Well, why do you think you're any different? I mean, you're not Billy Graham, but what, you, know, you know, if we're going to apply a standard, we're going to have to apply it. And I wound up being in, in the position, and I told him this ahead of time. I said, I'm going to send out a letter that as an elder in the church, because I was, I was an elder or ordained a, a, in a local congregation at that point, I said, I'm gonna send out a letter that says as an elder, I can no longer uh, stand by the recommendation that I gave. And I, w- I wouldn't give any details. Mm-hmm. And it was really a fascinating thing, the people that canceled, because they said, thank you for your integrity. Mm-hmm. And the other people said, well, he's, he's our best fundraiser we ever have, we're gonna go through with the event. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just the gambling thing, there was, a whole, there was a whole nother thing going on as well, but that's yeah. the one I'll mention. Yeah, yeah. I love the piece that you bring up about your church background because i grew up in a brethren church so of course we're like the uh, drunk relatives of the amish that are invited <laughs> to the party but of the same flow that's hilarious and uh so i you know i think a lot of people don't get like the church i grew up in was an extended family there was no paid staff so frankly uh half the church didn't even go to the actual service uh they went to communion for an hour they went to sunday school and then they hung out in the parking lot while one of the elders inevitably muddled through uh a message but it was our home and we would actually like 40 to 60 people would go camping one weekend every month year round and so we were just in the fifth wheels of seniors that were our grandparents and so when I hear people talk about the institutional church and all the problems with it, for me, it was a fantastic place 
to discover community. And those lessons, I think, as I slid into community the way you describe, it really came from that. And so I, I love that that's part of your story because I, I don't find a lot of people that, that have that. It's usually the pains or hypocrisy of their church experience and them having to overcome it. So, yay for that part of the Amish church, for whatever <laughs> wrongs there are. For whatever wrongs there are. I think one of the things that um, you know, became very clear to me, um, Linda, uh, growing up in her, in her drunk family, uh, had a lot more street savvy than I did, a lot more discernment than I did. And I, Dad came to us when we were young boys. I was, I'm a, I was probably nine or ten years old, and he said, Do you know what this verse means? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Mm -hmm. King James, right? Mm -hmm. He says, do you know what the word upbraideth mm -hmm. means? And I said, no. He said, it means he doesn't scold you for asking. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say you have to be a Christian either. It just says, if anyone asks God for wisdom, God will give wisdom. So all my life I've prayed for wisdom. But then I, then I discovered that my wife, um, and I, I think women are, are, are relationally smarter than men to, you know, just... There's all kinds of stuff going back to Genesis on that one. But um, what happened, uh, I realized that she had more discernment. And then I read Proverbs again. Here's Solomon, who's got a 1,000 women, and go, how can he be called the wisest man on earth? <laughs> and then he makes the statement, get wisdom, but above all else, get discernment. Mm -hmm. And I realized how lacking I was in discernment. And a lot of, I really need Linda yeah. to this day yeah. because of her sharpened sense of dis uh, discernment. Um, and and so there's just there's just this growing process of our of our life together that has really become joyful. You guys have been married how long now? Oh, uh, thirty coming up on thirty eight years this year. Wow. Hey, Nate, did you did you hear what he just said? What's that? He was lacking something in his spiritual journey, and instead of taking a class to gain more discernment, he realized there were people who were gifted to do that. Yeah. That were he, were he to have all the gifts, he would not need other people. Mm -hmm. So instead of simply trying to gain for himself a gift that was not given, he learned to trust the wisdom of others. Isn't that amazing? Can I say one more thing about that? Um, yeah. You know, um, one of the most dynamic events of our life, um, in our married life, uh, came this past year when we were, we were having difficulty with a family issue, with, with the situation. And I walked into the bedroom one morning. I, by the way, uh, for 38 years, I've been bringing her coffee in bed. Okay. And, and part of that is because she's a night owl and it's self-protection. Uh, and and if, if, I don't bring her, if I don't bring her coffee in the morning to wake her up, she's gonna be up all night and I won't sleep and I'll be a grump. Okay. okay. So this is self-protection. But anyway, I'm bringing her coffee in bed. It's about eight, eight in the morning. I said something to her. And here's this Irish Swede, California, just put the equation together, yeah. with this ex-Mennonite Amish, <laughs> peace-loving guy, right? <laughs> I say something, and it's, it triggers her, and she goes from zero, not to 10, to 100 Yeah. before I have had my coffee. Yeah, okay. Is screaming at me. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I'm not doing it. She said, you're supposed to go do that. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do it. I go, I am not doing it. Yeah. And I walk out of the room, which I almost never do, because we, you know, yeah. men and I stand there and take it, you know, whatever. But you know, <laughs> I walked out of the, I walked out of the room, and the discernment thought hit me. Yeah, yeah. I'm one step past the doorway, yeah. and she is still screaming. Yeah. And I turn around and walk back in. I go, okay, I really have to know 
why you feel so strongly about this. And she starts crying. Yeah. She said, I think God wants to give us a breakthrough. Yeah. And I think you're supposed to do it. I said, okay, I will go do this. Yeah. If you pray while I'm gone. Yeah. Hmm. I went, and it, again, it's too long a story for this, and it's, it's, it's something we can talk about again. Yeah. But, but it is, it is that, that gave us a, an incredible um, insight, gave me an insight into the fact, just because, guys, your wife says something to you in a way that you don't like, be sure to stop and listen to what she is saying because she might be right, even if you can't stand how she said it. Right. Yes. It's important. Wow. Yeah. Um, Allie will tell you that uh, one of the biggest changes in our marriage in the last 15 years is that I listen to her now. And more than that, actually solicit her advice. Um, and that has required a few things of me. First of all, I had to jettison the arrogance that I brought into this marriage which is, I'm always the smartest guy in the room. Uh, I'm male and logical, and uh, logic trumps everything always. Uh, it's a, I didn't realize until much later how deeply I was wounding my mm -hmm. wife all those years. I did the with, same. With my yeah. condescending attitude, yeah. my dismissive, nothing. And really, there's nothing that Allie... Uh, there are a few things really that encourage Allie more than for me to seek her advice, listen, weigh her advice, take her advice, and then especially when when uh, when it works out that she was just dead on right, uh, being being man enough to admit it, right? Yeah. yeah. So you guys both talked about the benefit that you get <clears throat> yeah. out of doing that. What I'm sorry that that your wives get yeah. rather. Like that's what you were saying. Like, it yeah. does Allie this good? Yeah. Like, what do you get out of that? Like, what what's it do for you as a man? First of all, it puts me. Uh, I desperately need a massive helping of humility every day, uh, just because of my natural tendency toward arrogance. Hmm. And um, so it does. It's it's spiritually healthy for me to seek the advice, to ask the advice of somebody else, especially my wife. That's one benefit yeah, to me. Okay. One, one of the things I would say is, is it, it has set me free from putting things in categories. And, and as I get older, this is connected to it as well. One of the most um, fun things I do at 65 years old is say, is that in the Bible? And just because it go, you know, because anyway, so things that are not in the Bible, and this is this is one of the awarenesses that came from in, in direct answer to your question. Yeah. There is no such phrase in the Bible as the role of men. There's right? no such phrase in the Bible as the role of women. There is no phrase in the Bible that says men are the leaders in the home. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to rethink life together. That this is a this is a mutual uh, trek yeah. toward the gates of heaven. And the dignity that comes in our humanity. The other th the thing that we're not talking about, again, in the church, is the dignity of our humanity. Jesus came to dignify it, hmm. not to destroy it. Yes. And, and so what we are talking about in podcasts like this and in, the, in recovery and all these things of, of learning, of trying to figure out, we're talking about the restoration and the dignity of our humanity being given to us. Mm. You know, because when we get to heaven, C.S. Lewis said it well. You know, uh, Lewis said, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be aliens. We're not going to be, you know, um, angels. Mm -hmm. We're going to be fully developed men and women, human yeah. Yeah. in every respect. Yeah. yeah. There's an underlying principle that makes this a lot easier for me. <clears throat> and uh, it, it might start 
sounding liberal at first, but remember that God gives wisdom to all liberally, so uh, just go with it for a minute. Uh, you said it, Wes. I'm claiming it. Um, it. We have a problem with penises. We have a giant penis Speak problem for yourself. in the church. Uh, yeah, okay. I know. And And the problem is that we think God has a majestic dong, and that's wrong. There is no penis on the divine person of God. Now, track with me here, if, if you don't mind. Every theology, be it uh, liberal or conservative, confesses that God is spirit. He claims he's spirit. God is not man. He's holy. He's transcendent, and he made man. We are creatures. And everything in Scripture that speaks of him as father or protecting us with his feathers and his wings is anthropomorphic, so we can understand God through the lens of that which we experience. However, he is spirit, and we are creatures, which means God does not have male parts. But because there are all these male pronouns in the Bible, which are anthropomorphic for me to understand God through my lens, when I ask people, close your eyes and picture God, I get two answers. Every uh, once in a while, maybe 10% of the people I've asked, and I've asked hundreds of people this over 20 years, some of them will say, I just picture him as like light. Most will picture him as an older man. If my view of God is as a man, then whether I acknowledge it or not, I believe my wife has to somehow come through me to understand God because God and I have a connection that she and God do not have because God is a man. He's got a penis. But if God is no more man than woman, if we are both made in his image and expressions of his manifold character, then my wife has every bit as much to teach me about the character of God as I have to show her. And for years, because my underlying picture of God was as a man, I was degrading what my wife was bringing to the table without even being conscious of it. There's a good point. she believed that about God, she degraded herself. But once I realized that though I have certain things to bring to the table, she does not, I still have to go to her to discover things about God that I will never find on my own. The very first time that the Spirit of God is mentioned in the Bibles in Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit of God, Ruah, hovered on the face of the deep, it is in the feminine gender. Mm-hmm. And we're not taught that in our churches for the exact same reasons that you are talking about, because so much about what we have in the current structure is about male domination and control. Yeah. Uh, this is not, by the way, to go back to your penis uh, illustrations, this is not the penis-driven life. <laughs> uh-huh. Indeed. So I, I think just as an overarching, uh, I can surrender to my wife's wisdom more when I accept that, and mm-hmm. it takes the pressure off of me having to be the one who knows everything. Yeah. Good stuff. I think we've reached the end of our hour here, Nate. What do you think? I I do think the time has flown. Uh, and it's unfortunate we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, <laughs> Wes's book, Bond of Brothers. There will be a link in the show notes to that to check out uh, this great book about connecting with other men. Great book. And then if you would, Wes, before we close, talk to us about 
your involvement in the New Canaan Fellowship and, and the Fellowship for Society. Yeah, New Canaan Society okay. is a group that was started in New Canaan, Connecticut. It sounds spiritual, uh, and it does have spiritual uh, wings as well. It's, it's a group of men who are seeking Jesus and seeking spiritual friendship with Jesus in the midst. Uh, to live pure lives, to live uh, for the King, to live uh, in awareness of, of our brotherhood, um, and and to have uh, a way to get together to spark the kind of conversations about the things men really care about, the language of the heart. Mm-hmm. And brothers, if we need anything, we need a dialect of the heart to really express yeah. who we are, our identity, to know ourselves, to talk about it, to talk about what we really care about. Yeah. Um, one of the great questions that you can bring into, you know, develop the art of asking good questions. Here's one for you to use in your group. What's the most surprising thing that has ever happened in your life? Doesn't sound spiritual, it'll take the lid off. Oh, really? Okay. All right. And there's a local chapter, obviously, here in Franklin, Tennessee, but how many chapters are there nationwide? Uh, there are probably 60 or 70 chapters nationwide. Uh, we have about 100 guys, 85 to 100, that come down to Puckett's in Franklin uh, the first and third Thursdays of every month. We tend to have a speaker. Sometimes we don't have speakers, and we mm-hmm. just talk around tables. Sometimes we have a panel uh, from the audience, and they don't know who's going to be in it. Mm-hmm. And I get to ask them questions, and if they don't want to answer the question, they can say boomerang, and I have to answer it. Ah, That's very cool. cool. I'll have a link in the show notes as well to the New Canaan Society where you can find if a group is uh, meeting in your area. And, of course, there's information about how to uh, connect with the Samson Society as well. All right. Well, time has flown. We have once again come to the end of a great conversation. Let's do it again next week. I like that idea. Wes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, brother. Man, you bring a lot to the table. Thank you. You bring an awful lot to the table, and we have been enriched by your time with us. So until next week, I'm Nate. I'm Mark. I'm Newton. And I'm Aaron. All right. (laughs) We'll see you next time on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh Junior, baby. Preaching recovery.